Go ahead and pray with me one last time. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so humbled by the opportunity to study your word. We're so humbled by the opportunity to know you through your word. Lord, you didn't have to reveal yourself to your people. You didn't have to reveal yourself to anyone, but you did. And through Christ, we have redemption. And through the Holy Spirit, we have understanding. So Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the gift of knowledge and understanding of who you are. And I ask that even now, we would grow to love you and worship you in greater measure, more than we even did when we came in this weekend. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we are at the final session. It went really fast. I don't know if it went fast for you. It went fast for me. So I'm glad that you joined us. It was, it was an honor to meet so many of you. And it's always a joy to meet people, not only in other like-minded churches, but in the state that I live in as well. So it's such a, a blessing to be here with other Arkansans to um, celebrate God and celebrate all the ways that he works, but also to see the work that he's doing in local churches all over. So it's a blessing to be here. But one of the things that my sons, so I have four boys, my twins are five years old, and when one of them gets hurt, he, his tendency to, is to ask me, mommy, is God going to heal me? Is God going to heal me? And so when he's hurt, his first, his first line of response is to pray, or to, for, ask me to pray, and to ask if God's going to heal him if his tummy hurts or if he doesn't feel well. He asks me if God is going to make him feel better. And so let's say he goes to bed and then he wakes up in the morning and the wound is scabbed over or his stomach feels better or he's not sick anymore. His first response is, mommy, God healed me. And so often that's not my first response when God delivers me. My first response is not a childlike faith to say, God healed me. God delivered me. Well, we can learn a lot from children. We can learn a lot from the simplicity of their responses. Is that your first response when God heals you? When God answers the cry of your heart, when he answers your prayer, when he delivers you from suffering, it's your first response to say, God did this. God healed me. God saved me. When you spend your days in Psalm 73 and you get to the end, is your first response to praise the Lord, to recount his deeds. When, you're, when the womb is finally opened, when you have money in the bank account finally, when you finally get the job that you've been asking for, do you praise the Lord? As I said last night, the word psalm literally means praise. And you can't praise a God that you don't know. And you can't lament to a God that you don't know and trust. But we won't praise him accurately if we don't know him either. And so as we follow through the message of the psalms and we look at the purpose of the psalms and we look at how they worked, we're finally at the psalms of praise. We're finally at the Psalms of Thanksgiving. There are some scholars who, when they're talking about the Psalms, would, would say that the Psalms have this general theme of there are Psalms of orientation. These are just general Psalms of Thanksgiving for praising God for who he is. So Psalms of orientation. And then the way the Psalms tend to move is they move to the Psalms of disorientation, which would be the Psalms of lament, the Psalms of suffering, and then we have the Psalms of reorientation. They would call these the Psalms of reorientation. And these are the Psalms of deliverance over the lament. So you either are praising God for who he is, then you lament because you know who God is. You lament to God, and then you praise him for delivering you. So I think this is a helpful way to think about the Psalms as we're reading the Psalms. And as you go about your life and read the Psalms, I hope you'll take this with you. Because it gives us a category for thinking about God in the various seasons of our life, the various difficulties and trials that life brings our way. When all is going well, we should praise God for who he is. When life is hard, we should cry out to God and ask him to act according to his character. When he delivers us, 
We should praise him for the work that he has done. The Psalms challenge us to look to God in every season, in every joy, and in every deliverance. And in many ways, the entire point of the Psalms is to get us to praise. It's to finally get us to the point where we praise the Lord for who he is and what he has done. But the Psalms take us on a journey to that point. They take us on this long journey through life to get us to praise. When the Psalms express thankfulness, it's always directed to God for his gracious work for his people. And as Christians, we should take our cues from the psalmist. We can be thankful for the many material possessions that God gives us. We can be thankful for family members. We can be thankful for earthly things. But when we express our appreciation for those things, it must always be directed back to the giver who gives us earthly blessings, but also an abundance of heavenly blessings. So for our final session, we're going to look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is a familiar psalm. You read it in your small group time. We're going to read it again. So turn with me if you have your Bible to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And my hope for this weekend as we looked at, at various psalms is that as you go back into your, to your normal life and as you read the psalms, I pray that you're, my prayer for everyone is that you would be able to read the psalms in a different light now, knowing what the purpose of the psalms is, knowing how they're used and how God is on display in the psalms. So Psalm 103, Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 103 is a beautiful picture of the fact that specific praise leads to abundant worship. Specific praise leads to abundant worship. Charles Spurgeon, who has written essentially, and essentially he's written on every single psalm, so he has um, a commentary on every single psalm. One of my goals in life is to get through it. It's 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 massive. There's two volumes, and so it'll probably take me my entire life to get through it. But that's one of my goals in life is to get through this entire commentary. And I've read about three of the psalms, so I'm three psalms into 150. But on this particular psalm, Charles Spurgeon said that we could spend a thousand pages and we would never exhaust all that God is doing here. 
And the more I studied this, this psalm, the more I realized that I'm never going to do it justice with everything that is being talked about here. Everything that God is doing here, everything that David is praising the Lord for here, we would spend our lifetime trying to unpack it all and still have things to unpack. As, as I already said, Psalm 103 is written by David. And Spurgeon believes that this psalm was probably written towards the end of David's life. He gets that because he thinks that the depths of what David is talking about here could only be written, written by someone who has lived this life. Someone who has seen his sin forgiven in abundant ways. Someone who is nearing the end of his life and senses his own frailty and senses that he is dust. David, there's a soberness in what David is saying here. There's a reality to what David is saying here. But there's abundant praise. He has lived life with God and he's praising God for what he's done. The common theme in Psalm 103 is that Praise begets praise, begets praise, begets praise. So the more you praise, the more you praise, and the more you praise. It's a beautiful expression of overflowing thankfulness to God. In verse 1, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So much like the word blessed in Psalm 1, we can often stumble over what does it mean to bless the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? We often think of God being the one who blesses us. He's the one who bestows blessings on us. So to think of us blessing the Lord, we can kind of wonder, what does that mean? What does that look like? One translation helpfully says this for verse 1. My soul praise Yahweh, and all that is within me praise his holy name. That's the point of verse 1. Praise the Lord. David here is talking to himself. He is telling himself to praise the Lord. He's telling himself to praise Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. Every fiber of David's being is pouring out blessing and praise and honor to God. And not just some God who is standing far off from him, but Yahweh the God who revealed himself to Abraham, the God who revealed himself to David, and the God who reveals himself to us. He is saying, praise the God who is here. Praise the God who is near. Praise the God who is active. He is celebrating God's goodness towards his people. But he doesn't end with just saying, praise the Lord. In verse 2, David urges himself and us to forget not all his benefits. He is telling us to call to mind what God has done for us. In essence, he is saying, remember God so you can see how he has worked for you. Remember what he's done so your eyes can see what he's done. It's hard to praise the Lord when you can't remember what he's done for you. So remember Call to mind the great things that he has worked on your behalf. If you do, I imagine that if you spend time recounting, it will bring about the same joyous response that David has here. David gives us a helpful guide for expounding on the the specific ways that God blesses his people. God provides benefits to his people. So we're going to look at those. The command here to praise the Lord reminds us that God works in our lives and that we should always, it should always lead us to praising him. So I've broken this psalm into four sections, kind of unpacked it into four sections. The first is that remembering God's deliverance is specific, and this is where we kind of see a guide of how to, how to unpack that. Remembering God's deliver, deliverance is specific. The second is that God's deliverance leads us to reflect on his character and how he works in the world. God's deliverance leads us to reflect on his character and how he works in the world. Then third, God's deliverance reminds us of who we are. God's deliverance reminds us of who we are. And then fourth, God's deliverance is always for the good of everyone. God's deliverance is always for the good of everyone.
So first, God, remembering God's deliverance is specific. Remembering God's deliverance is specific. In verses three through five, we see five specific reasons, five benefits that David calls to mind. David, it's important to know that David is not just talking about generic things here. He is being specific. He doesn't just tell us to remember what God has done. He then tells us to recount the deeds of the Lord. In verse 3, the first part of verse 3, he forgives all of your iniquity. This is the foundation of our praise. All other benefits mean nothing if our sins are not forgiven. Nothing else matters. Our sins are forgiven. That is first and foremost the primary benefit we should be thankful for. Because at the cross, our greatest problem was dealt with by God. Our sins were paid for. This gives us enough reason to celebrate all of our days and to be thankful for the very rest of our lives and even into eternity. Our sins are forgiven. He forgives all of your iniquity. But then we also see that in the second part of verse 3, he heals all of your diseases. He heals all of your diseases. We can see that the greatest disease is in our souls. Sin, right? Sin is the greatest disease in our souls. But God also is the great physician. God is the one who provides modern medicine. God is the one who gifts doctors and scientists to find cures. God is the one who ultimately heals us of all of our diseases. Doctors and nurses and people who are in charge of engineering antibiotics and drugs are just conduits of God's grace for us. God is the one who heals all of our diseases. But like the Psalm 1 passage, we can read this if we're in the midst of a season where we are not being healed and wonder if this could be true for us. Because maybe you face an illness your entire life and there is no hope for a cure. But even if you're not facing healing in this life, you will face healing in the one to come. He will one day heal every one of our diseases. We're going to get resurrected bodies. And if your body feels like it's failing you, I know mine does on a regular basis, there's hope. He will one day heal all of your diseases, whether he heals it right now temporarily or heals it finally on the day when you get a new body. He heals all of your diseases. As we saw with Psalm 1, wisdom literature, literature cannot be taken to the bank as promises that are true in the minute you ask for them to be, to be made true. You can't pray and ask for God to heal you and expect that he's necessarily going to heal you right then. Wisdom literature is generally true. But we do have this hope that God's timetable is not ours and he one day will heal all of our diseases finally. This verse is as much about our future hope as it is about our current hope. But then in verse 4, we see that he redeems your life from the pit. He takes you out of the pit of sin and he redeems your life. Before God saved us, we were all living in a pit of sin and despair and hopelessness. Think of, when you think of someone in a pit, and you can't get out of a pit. You can't pull yourself out of it, but God does that. He pulls us out of it. He makes us new creations by the atoning work of Jesus. But it's also, I think, more than that. He also redeems our life from the pit of despair. All throughout the Psalms, so if you see Psalm 103 in the context of the entirety of the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, you see a lot of despair, a lot of pits of despair. And maybe you're living there right now, and you wonder when the darkness is going to lift. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is what many people think is the darkest psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 88 doesn't end with hope necessarily. The psalmist is crying out to God, but he doesn't have any turning point of where he, he sees God deliver him. He's in the pit of despair. 
But Psalm 88 isn't the only psalm in the Psalter. Psalm 103 is here. He redeems your life from the pit. And I don't know when he will redeem your life from the pit of despair. But I know that one day he will because of what I know about what's true of those who, are in, who trust in Christ. Whether it's in this life or the one to come, your life will be redeemed from the pit of despair that you find yourself in. One of my favorite Psalms scholars is Mark Futado. He's a seminary professor at Reformed Theological Seminary. And I've, I've really enjoyed every, almost every, I've read as much as I can get my hands on of his works on the Psalms. And one thing I heard him say one time about the Psalms is that we don't know, when we, when we think of the Psalms, we read them in their entirety. But what we don't know is if someone, when they wrote the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Lament, if they wrote the Lament part maybe in November and then wrote the Deliverance part at the end of the Psalm in maybe October, a whole maybe 11 months later. We don't know how long it took them to write the Psalms. The point being is that sometimes you live in lament for a long time. Sometimes you live in despair for a long time. And so we have to keep that in mind when we wonder when God is going to deliver us. But God always shows up. God always delivers. And like we saw in Psalm 1, as surely as we can trust that the oak day will one day grow and bear fruit, we can trust that he will deliver us as well. We just have no idea when. And that's sometimes the hardest place to be, isn't it? To not know when he's going to deliver us. But then we move to verse, the second part of verse 4. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. A crown is given to royalty. When we are re- forgiven and redeemed, we are brought into the royal family of God. And we are given the benefits of being his children. This is the application of his healing and saving and forgiving and atoning work. We get never-ending, always faithful mercy and love from our Heavenly Father. The benefits that we see David recounting just keep on coming, and we're not even done with them yet. David praises God by his personal name because he knows God personally, and that is what we get from God. He's a personal God. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. We are his. We are part of his royal family. Verse 5 says that he satisfies us with good, renewing our youth like the eagles. All of the benefits mentioned in the previous verses are good things that satisfy our souls. He satisfies us with an abundance of good, namely the goodness of himself. He is the ultimate source of good, and he's the only good one. This goodness towards us renews us and gives us new life. I don't know about anyone in this room, but I squandered my youth. I didn't become a believer until halfway through college. So I squandered my teenage and early college years. And it's verses like this one that remind me that God is a forgiving and redeeming God. He redeems our youthful wanderings. He restores the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, as Joel says. He gives us new vigor to serve him and honor him all of our days. So if you look back on your life and wonder if there is hope for you to live a faithful life to the Lord in the future because of your past life, let Christ's redeeming work assure you that he renews you like the eagle. He makes you strong and vigorous. Spurgeon also says that this is like the psalmist got a new lease on life. This is like him saying, I have a new lease on life. And this is what Christ does when he saves us. He gives us new life to serve him all of our days. As I already said, we have to keep in mind as we're reading wisdom literature or reading the Psalms that these specific things are not necessarily promises that we can take to the bank. So he might not heal all of our diseases. He might not give us energy as in our youthful days. 
the only thing that is certain for us is that Christ, because of Christ, he does forgive our sins and remove it from us. As long as we're in this life, difficulty will come. They are speaking of things that are generally true. So these verses are speaking of things that are generally true with the exception of salvation. That's the thing we can bank on. Christ's work and forgiveness of our sins is the thing that we can bank on. But the character of God that we find in the Psalms doesn't change. Even if our circumstances don't always look like David's here. The most important thing to remember is that our sins are forgiven if we are in Christ. And everything else pales in comparison to that. So remember how he has saved you. And then look at your life now and see how he's working even still. So the psalmist sees God's work and he praises him. Do you respond like that when you see God's work? Our natural bent when we've been delivered is to grab the gift of deliverance and to move on. I think of even like children on Christmas Day. So children spend all this, I, I, do this, I did this too as a child, so we spend all December staring at those gifts under the tree and we want those gifts and we can't wait to open those gifts. And once we open those gifts, what do we do? We throw the paper on the floor and we start playing with it. And I remember as a child, and I have to do this with my own children, my parents telling me, say thank you to your grandmother. The natural bent isn't to say thank you once you get the gift, once you get what you wanted. We're not naturally thankful people when we get what we wanted. Makes me even think of the 10 lepers in Luke 17. Only one of them came back to praise the Lord, to thank the Lord for his deliverance. In the crucible of leprosy, they all cried out to God. In the deliverance, only one thanked the healer. These, we should let these 10 lepers be a caution to us. We should let David be an exhortation to us. Don't neglect the specific praise in your deliverance. You were delivered so that God would get glory for his work in your life. You were saved so that others would know about the great salvation that you have. The gifts that God gives you, from the clothes on your back to the meals that you've had this weekend, even the sleep that you got last night, the fellowship that you've had, the car you can drive home in, everything you've been given is not so you would just enjoy the stuff you have, but so you would praise the giver of all good things. So thank God for the things he's given you. Be specific and talk about it with others. But the praise continues. So now we move from the specifics of the praise to a meditation on God and what he's done. God's deliverance, so second point, God's deliverance leads us to reflect on his character and how he works in the world. So the rest of this psalm is a further exposition of his goodness towards us. It's as if David, you just almost can just feel with David that he cannot stop thinking about all the ways that God is good and kind towards him. After specifically praising him for what he has done and who he is, the praise of God's character, continued praise of his character, just keeps coming. In verse 6, we see that he doesn't forget those who are oppressed. Instead, he works to execute justice. Think about this verse in light of Psalm 73. The righteous were not receiving justice. And it was only when the psalmist saw God that he could even see that God is a God of justice for the oppressed. Sometimes, and so often, it feels like the darkness is winning. But God's character reminds us that it's never going to win. He works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Then in verse 7, we see that he revealed himself to his people, even all the way back to Moses. His work with the Israelites back then is a testimony to his character now. And because of all this, we can trust him. We can trust that he will continue to work. And as we look at all the ways that he works, 
We are further awakened to his character, and it only leads to praise and worship. And it's this meditation on his work and on his character that leads David to see how great he is towards him in salvation. When we stand next to God and his greatness, we, see, we should sense our sin. We should sense it. When we see his mercy towards the oppressed, we should sense that we are not as merciful as he is. When we see his justice, we should sense that we are not nearly as just as he is. When we see his steadfast and unchanging ways with his people from the beginning of time until today, and then we know that we get frustrated with people. We get frustrated with them when they don't obey, when they don't do the right thing, when they're not just. Just think of Moses and the Israelites. Think of what they did, who they were. And he made known his ways to them. He didn't deal with them according to their sins. And what about us? I don't know about you, but I deal with almost everybody according to their sins. I have a strong sense of justice, not for myself, but for everybody else. Another reminder that I'm not God. God is merciful and gracious. He is kind and he's just. He makes known his ways to sinful, rebellious, covenant-breaking people. Like Moses and the Israelites. Like David. And like us. Verses 8 through 9 are such a profound statement on his kindness towards his people. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. This is a promise. We can bank on this. We can take this to the bank. He is patient, and he will deal with us kindly. But then we get to verses 10 through 13, and we see that he doesn't deal with any of us according to our sins. He doesn't deal with Moses or anyone according to their sins. Instead, what does he do with our sins? He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. One of my favorite Old Testament commentators is Dale Ralph Davis. And if you know me at all, and if you've ever been in Bible study with me, I find a way to bring Dale Ralph Davis into everything. I love him. If I ever met him, I think I would cry because I just love his writing and his sermons and everyone in my church Bible say thinks I'm crazy, but I love him. And he often, as he's talking about scripture, will say, we should get to the end of this and, and, and sing the doxology. We should just stop and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And he'll do that about the Old Testament because he's an Old Testament scholar. So he really makes the Old Testament come alive. But I think we should get to the end of this. As far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us and sing the doxology. And sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. But how can he do this? How can a God who is just and righteous remove our sin and not deal with us according to the sin that we know is so flagrant and apparent in our lives? How can he not punish us for our iniquity? Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's where our sin goes. It goes on Jesus. It's covered by Jesus. It's paid for by Jesus. It's removed by Jesus. David is rejoicing here that there is a mediator who will cover his sin. He only had the sacrificial system, but he had the same faith that we have, the faith that has gone through the Old Testament until now. God has always saved his people by faith. The same faith is the same faith that we possess, knowing that God provides a mediator for our sin. Praise the Lord that there's a mediator for our sin. God's deliverance reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of how he works in the world. 
He is patient. He is merciful and gracious. And he doesn't repay any of us according to our sins. But that moves us to our third point. God's deliverance reminds us of who we are. God's deliverance reminds us of who we are. So the more we meditate on who God is, the more we see who we are. The more we see that not, we don't just see our sinfulness, but we also see our frailty. Verses 13 through 14 are some of my favorite verses in all of the Psalms. I have a good friend who um, also dealt with a similar, as I mentioned last night, our, um, our experience of me having our fourth son dealt with something very similarly. And when she and I are texting and talking about it, we, she often brings up this verse that he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at a good father, the psalmist says. A good father understands the frailty of his son. A good father doesn't expect more of his son than his son is mentally and physically capable of giving. A two-year-old cannot be expected to clean the car or mow the grass. A five-year-old cannot be expected to change a tire on his bike. An infant cannot be expected to feed himself. A bad father expects all of those things from a child. But a good father has compassion on the frailty and limitations of his children. A good father sees our frailty and sees our sinfulness and sees our inability to save ourselves or care for ourselves, and he has compassion on us. God is like that. He knows that you're human. He knows that you are not God. He knows your limitations, whatever those limitations might be, and he has compassion on you. He knows that your life is short and that aging and death are coming for all of us. And he's a good father and a kind father and a father who bears with you in your weakness. When we see God's character and work, it reminds us how fleeting and frail we really are. We can never love like God. We can never forgive like God. We can never work like God. God never needs sleep, doesn't slumber or sleep. We all need sleep, right? We all need rest. Next to God, we are frail. We are dust. We are small. We are like a flower in a field that is blown away in the wind. That's the duration of our life. And here the psalmist is saying, God stands in stark contrast to that. But notice what verse 17 says about God. It doesn't say that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is from everlasting to everlasting. But that's not where the psalmist goes. What does he say? He says that God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. A meditation on our own frailty leads to praise, not only for God's might and eternal nature, but his love. We may pass away but God's love never passes away. And this always leads to praise. So a meditation on how God works personally and specifically leads to a meditation on his character, which leads to an awareness of who we are, which then leads to more praise. The praise in Psalm 103 just keeps coming and coming and coming. It's such a rich meditation on God in all of his ways. And it culminates in the final verses, which are about even more abundant praise. So fourth, God's deliverance is always for the good of everyone. 
God's deliverance is always for the good of everyone. All of these great realities about God's work on our behalf culminate in a final word of praise and thanksgiving for all that he's done. The Holman Bible says it this way, Praise the Lord, all his angels of great strength who do his word, obedient to his command. Praise the Lord, all his armies, his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works in all the places where he rules. My soul, praise Yahweh. Notice the progression in these verses. The angels in heaven praise the Lord. All who serve him on earth praise the Lord. All creation praise the Lord. So the angels in heaven, the people on earth, and then everything that he has created, praise the Lord. This brings to mind Jesus' saying that even the rocks would cry out if no one would praise him. God will get glory for himself. He will get glory for himself. If no one else is praising him, he will get praise. He will get it from somewhere. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. So if not a soul on earth is praising him, even the heavens are praising him. He will get glory for himself. But after reading everything in Psalm 103, how can we be silent after everything that he has done? How can we be silent after meditating on God in the magnitude of ways that he works in this world? David says that all of heaven and earth will sing his praises because of the good things that he has done. The heavens and the earth cannot be silent about God's wonderful interactions with us. And we shouldn't be silent either. But our praise should never be just for our own benefit. If we praise in our room alone, it's not enough. Because David moves from a meditation on personal deliverance to corporate praise. His praise is for everyone. As the entire creation sees what God has done in his life and the lives of his people, nobody, nothing can keep silent. This is another common theme throughout the book of Psalms. It's never just about praise for ourselves. It's for the praise of everyone. So if God's word is the foundation and understanding of the Psalms, and then crying out to him in distress flows from that, then praising him for what he has done for everyone to take, be- to get a- to take benefit in should be for us as well. We often talk about how we never sin in isolation. It always affects everybody else. But we're also not saved in isolation. We don't praise in isolation. It's all for the good of others. It's always so others can see what God has done and so that he will get glory as the giver of all good things. Just think of Psalm 66, verses 16 through 17. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Psalm 22 also says that I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then he goes on in Psalm 22 in the end of the psalm, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And then Psalm 102, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height from heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise. All of this reminds us that when we cry out to God and see him deliver, this is our response. We should tell others about it. And the psalmists are telling us here that we should do that so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. And if you think about that, God's work has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And we here are that people yet to be created that the psalmist is talking about. 
We are seeing God work here in all of Scripture, and we're the benefits, beneficiaries of that. And so when you recount what God has done, you are continuing this long line of praise so that a generation yet to be created may praise the Lord. What you tell others about now is for the good of the people in your life right now, it's for the good of your church, but it's for the good of generations to come as well. Your deliverance is not in isolation. God's mercy towards you is not just for you. It's for all who come in contact with you. All who know your story and your struggles and your desire and your prayers. It's so they would look at your life and say, praise the Lord. Look at how he delivered her. Look at how he worked in her life. It's so they would look at how God has not forsaken you and say, surely he is a God worthy of my trust as well. So where we go when our suffering is over says as much about us as where we go in the midst of our suffering. And it all goes back to what we believe about God. If we view God as a genie in a bottle, there to heal us whenever we ask, then when deliverance comes, then we'll just move on with our lives. But if we love him for who he is, because his word has been our meditation day and night, then deliverance will be one more opportunity to praise the one that we have loved all along. And we will long to tell others about it. But this is not just a model found in the Psalms. It's a model found in the New Testament as well. Colossians 1, I'll read parts of Colossians 1. Verse 3 says, we always thank, this is Paul saying, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. And then he goes on to recount all that God has done. He goes on to recount all the ways that God has worked. And then in verse 12, he gives more thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then all of this leads to verse 15, which is such a well-known passage on who Christ is. Verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All, th all things were created through him and for him. And then this long meditation on who Christ is. And you can hear the echoes of Psalm 103 in there. The specificity of what God has done in the lives of these believers leads to greater worship. It leads to then speaking about the character of God, the beauty of Christ. It led to the proclamation to others for what God has done in their lives. Do you see how there's nothing that's happening here that's in isolation? It's all connected to each other. Even their salvation was for the good of others. Paul says even his ministry is for the good of others. God's deliverance is meant to be told. All throughout the Old Testament, you see the, the Moses and Joshua saying, recount these things to your children. Recount these things to your children. We are so prone to forget what God has done. We're so prone to forget God's kindness towards us. But we have to remember and remember and remember. Are there specific ways that God has delivered you? I know there are. When God answers the cry of your heart, do you thank him? If we are in Christ, we have much to be thankful for every day. God has removed the stain of sin. He has given us the righteousness of Christ, and he's promised us a great future with him. Let us join the everlasting song and praise his name forever. Because he's done great things for us. The last five psalms of the Psalter are all about praising God. They culminate in these great 
final five psalms in praising the Lord. We see them praising God for his glory, praising God for his goodness, praising God for his work. From Psalm 146 to Psalm 150, they all begin and end with praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They all talk about the various ways and reasons that we should praise the Lord for his work in salvation, for his work in creation, for his work among Israel, for who he is, from the highest of heavens to the ends of the earth. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for his work, his deliverance, his dealings with us. All his people praise him. The more specific we get, the more we praise. If you've ever spent any amount of time just thank, maybe in a journal or something, writing down the ways that God has worked in your life and praising him for his character towards you and then praising him for spe- specific things, praise begets praise. And it begets praise and it begets praise. The more you meditate on who he is, the more you see your own condition in light of his character, the more you will praise. The Psalms are all about praising God in every season, for every reason. The Psalms begin with God and they end with God. They begin with God's word and they end with abundant worship for who he is. The more you know God, the more you will praise God. The more you know God, the more you will run to him in your distress. The more you know God, the more you will trust him. All of this goes together, and all of it ties back to meditating on God's word day and night. So we end with great worship. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Like the child who finds that his wound is healed and immediately praises the Lord. So we should look at our souls and recount the ways that he's worked in saving us, in restoring us, in establishing us, in providing for us, and say that God did it. Only God can do this. Only God can make dead people live again. Don't let the illusion of your strength fool you into thinking that you've done this. It's all of the Lord. So praise the Lord and remember all his goodness towards you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray.